We are going to be in uh, chapter 9 this morning, the end, uh, second half of chapter 9. And we're actually going to be diving into part of chapter 10 as well as supplement. This morning's message is entitled Atonement. And so it's pretty frank to see uh, what this message is going to be about. Um, I'm not going to give much of an introduction this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover, and so we're just going to get right into it. I'd like to uh, open up by reading part of chapter 9. Specifically, uh, we're going to read chapters 9, verse 15, and then we're going to jump over to verses 27 through 28. So I'm not going to read all of this section, but then we're going to go back and touch into parts of it. So you'll want to keep chapter 9 there in front of you. Uh, I, was, uh, I highlight my messages uh, a lot of times with regards to what I am quoting and so those, uh, the messages where there's a lot of yellow means that I'm quoting a lot from Scripture. And so more than half of this message today is Scripture. And so, uh, but I'm okay with that. I don't mind plagiarizing Scripture. So uh, let's just dive right in. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, he is the mediator, speaking of Jesus, of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then jumping forward to verse 27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we read, as we study, as we apply your scripture to our lives. Be with me, Father, and let me not speak in error, but let me speak the truth of scripture and uh, help me to just make it plain uh, to the congregation as well as to myself. And uh, may we grow from this and may our affections be stirred for Christ and uh, our eyes opened to the depths of the atonement and what it, uh, the consequences of it. Father, we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen. If you have children, specifically more than one, then it is very possible that you have had to, in your life, served as a mediator between those two children. Now, you don't have to be a parent. You could, uh, you could just be you know, a, a brother or a sister. It could be an aunt, uncle, grandparent, whatever it might be. It is likely that you've had to mediate between two individuals. I know that it's very interesting trying to mediate an argument between an almost 17-year-old, which is shocking, and an 8-year-old. Because let me just tell you, there's absolutely no logic there at all between the 17-year-old, the 8-year-old, or the mediator. There's no logic whatsoever. It just kind of flies out the window, right? And so in this, in this opening uh, verse here, it says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So I want to walk through that just a little bit because we're going to be talking about the atonement and Christ's role as a mediator is important in that. And so a mediator is an individual who 
arbitrates between two or more parties who have differences or disagreements, right? And so that's just a real kind of formal definition. It occurs in business settings. We see it in divorce settlements and other occasions where the parties are aiming to come to some sort of consensus. So you have two individuals and uh, or two parties, and, and in fact, uh, R.C. Sproul, we're going to see here in a little bit, calls it that they're at enmity with one another, right? There is a disagreement. There is a difference of opinion between the two. And so a mediator steps in, and that mediator's role is to bring the two parties to a consensus or to reconciliation, if you will, um, uh, to the best of their ability. And so a mediator is typically an impartial or unbiased individual whose primary aim is to reconcile the gulf between the two parties at odds because the gulf is too big for them to surpass on their own. So they just, they can't get together and fix it on their own. So the mediator steps in and tries to bridge that gap between those two parties. Now, from a biblical perspective, there are two parties to be reconciled, God and man. Those are the two parties. The gulf between them is far too great for us to bridge on our own. And let me be very clear about that. What I mean by that is this. The gulf between us and God is far too great for us to bridge. We cannot reconcile ourselves to God. It is impossible to do. And the truth is, this is really where these comparisons have to stop. Because outside of this, the biblical narrative with regards to the mediator and Christ's role in that is a huge, huge difference between what we see in mediation in our human terms. And so let me walk you through that real quick. From a worldly account, this mediator is an unbiased and and is chosen by an independent party. But in the biblical narrative, the mediator is the son of God, chosen by the offended party, God, right? So God is the offended one, and he's the one who chooses the mediator, Christ, to bridge the gap between the two parties. The gulf between God and man was created solely by man's sin. The reconciliation will be resolved solely by God's grace. So where does that leave us? Well, we caused the problem, and we can do nothing to fix it, right? So when your child spills milk or messes up their room or something, what do we do as parents? Oftentimes we say, you need to clean that up, right? Folks, we can't clean this up. There's nothing we can do. We have to have a mediator to step in to to reconcile the damage that we have caused. And in the end, reconciliation is completely dependent upon the work of the mediator, Jesus the Christ. But our mediator doesn't simply bring the two parties together with a formal paper contract signed in ink. That's not what it is. Christ atones for the sin that created that gulf between God and man and signs the divine contract, this new covenant, in his own blood. So it is a much deeper, a much more, uh, a much more significant uh, contract, if you will. It's not just a simple contract. It is a covenant. It is a promise that has been laid out by God to reconcile man back to God through his own work through grace. 
But this prompts a question that we need to ask. Okay? And here's the question. Why would God send his only son to atone for the sin of creatures who voluntarily rejected him? We did not accidentally come to enmity with God. We did not accidentally just fall into sin. We voluntarily pursued sin, transgressed against a holy God, and now we are left with this massive gap where we cannot bridge on our own. So God, in his love, sends Christ for us. But why would God do that? Well, the answer is this. Because God does love man. He especially loves man. Man with a capital M, okay? So mankind, we could say. But even more important to that, a more important truth and crucial to our salvation, is that not only does God love man, but God loves his son. God loves his own son with an infinite love who for the sake of man became man and bore man's sin. And so this is how Jonathan Edwards writes this. He says, The divine excellency of Christ and the love of the Father to him is the life and soul of all that Christ did and suffered in the work of redemption. Indeed, men have their sins pardoned, for the sake of the divine excellency of Christ. And we are accepted into God's favor and have a title to eternal life for the sake of Christ because the Father infinitely loves him. If I could put it this way, if God did not love his Son to the extent in which he does, he would not have saved us. Now, that sounds like, how does that work? We're going to explain it towards the end of this message, but I'm going to promise you it all fits together. But our salvation is absolutely dependent upon the fact that God loves his son in in immeasurable ways, and he wants his son to be glorified. If it were not for that, we would not have salvation. So yes, we should celebrate and be encouraged that God loves us, but be thankful that God loves his son. Be thankful that God did not need creation to have affection because there was a perfect harmony between the Trinitarian God, the three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were perfectly content without us, right? You know exactly what that means. Some of us during quarantine have been doing just fine, right? Like some of us during quarantine, we've been like, not much has changed. We're really happy in our home just together right now. Some of us need to go out, uh, Sharon. I know, I know. But some of us are like, we're, we're pretty fine just kind of being there just amongst ourselves. Not much has changed, right? And so, but the idea is that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, were perfectly fine for all of eternity on their own, on their own. That love between them was infinite. It's incalculable. So in this message and through these verses in Hebrews chapter 9, what we're going to do is we're going to explore the atonement 
what warranted such a great substitutionary sacrifice and then the love the son has for the bride as he came to save her. So one of, the, one of these quotes that I wrote down actually after I wrote the sermon was by, uh, was by Herman Bavnik, and this is what he said. He said, God is the highest good to man, and that is the testimony of the whole Scripture. That God is the highest good to man, and that is the testimony of the whole Scripture. Because the atonement is not, is not primarily about us. It is about God and His goodness and His holiness and who He is. So what we're going to do is we're going to break that down. Why do we need the atonement and what does it actually do? What is being atoned for? And so let's start this out by saying this. When you talk about the atonement, you have to begin with the holiness of God. You have to begin there. Because if it were not for the holiness of God, honestly, the atonement might have been sufficient in the blood of animals and goats and calves, or maybe just a really sincere apology, right? That might have worked, except for the holiness of God. And so in our passage today, in the remainder of chapter 9, even in the chapter 10, what the author is doing is he's fleshing out this concept of the atonement as the inauguration of the new covenant and the fulfillment of the old. And so I'm going to remind you in verse 15 what he says, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so the aim here is that Jesus has come and has provided the atonement. He has redeemed the bride of Christ. The ultimate outcome of penal substitutionary atonement is that the penalty of the sins of man are paid for as Christ substituted himself for the for our purchase of eternal life. So what does that phrase mean? Penal substitutionary atonement. It means this. First of all, penal, meaning that there is a penalty. There is a penalty for sin or for transgression. Second, there is a substitution. So something has been substituted in the place of something else. Namely, in our situation, Christ has been substituted for us. And so instead of us receiving the penalty for our sin, Christ substitutes himself and then atonement. He atones for that sin with the biblical narrative, his life. So that is the heart of the new covenant. The heart of the new covenant is that our sins have been atoned for through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the heart of the new covenant. That is what the old covenant looks forward to and what the new covenant fulfilled. But that still begs the question, why? Why did our atonement require so much? Why didn't the multiple sacrifices of goats and lambs suffice? And again, it begins with the holiness of God. It begins with the holiness of God. And it is impossible for us to comprehend the fullness of God's kindness, goodness, and holiness. We can't, as finite creatures, comprehend what God's holiness really is. We read about it. We know that holiness, when we say the holiness of God, what we mean from a technical standpoint is it means that God is separate from us. 
that there is a separatedness from us, that he is somehow different in a sense, all right? There is something different there. There is no one like our God. So let me point you to two passages in Scripture, both from Isaiah, that sort of tries to demonstrate this. Number one is from Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe, the hem of his robe filled the temple. The hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. That is a depiction of the holiness of God. He's, there's just something different about our God. There are no other gods made with human minds or human hands that can compare to the holiness of our God. The hem of his robe is filling the temple. Folks, this is not a fellowship hall we're talking about. This is a massive, grandiose temple that the hem of our God is filling. That depicts this idea that he is ruling over all of this. Our God can be, cannot be measured. The second passage is from chapter 40, verses 22 through 26. God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We are like grasshoppers, folks. He stretches out the heavens like a thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces the princes to nothing and makes judges of earth of the earth like a wasteland. They are barely planted, barely sown. Their stem hardly takes root in the ground when he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind carries them away like stubble. And then he asks, to whom will you compare me or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by numbers. He calls out, he calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. That's the holiness of God. When we think of the holiness of God, oftentimes we think in terms of morality. We think of, we think of righteousness. We think of some sort of ethic. And certainly that ties into the holiness of God. But the holiness of God is something much more substantial. It's the fact that God is set apart from all of creation. From all of creation. That God stands above and beyond and over and under and around all of creation. Every star in the sky, he has placed them, he has named them, he has not forgotten about them. Not one. I know parents that have multiple kids that forget one of them at the grocery store. God doesn't forget a star in the sky, folks. We are like grasshoppers to him. Now that does not mean that we don't have value to him. What he's saying is that God is just something different. And that is his holiness that cannot be measured. Sproul says this about our ability to love a holy God. How can we love a holy God? The simplest answer I can give to this question is that we can't. 
Loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we can love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made of our own hands unless we are born of the Spirit of God, unless God sheds His holy love in our hearts, unless He stoops in His grace to change our hearts, we will not love Him. You've heard me say something similar to that. In the sense, the only way that we can come to God is if God places it in our hearts to come to him. That's the only way that it happens. Here is the beautiful thing about this picture is that God does it. God does it. It's not that it's just the only way. It's that God makes a way for this to actually be accomplished. Now, folks, to say that God's glory, all right, is his ultimate goal that God's glory is his main aim, that he gets as much glory as possible, and that he receives the most glory when we find our sufficiency in him would be the most narcissistic thing in the world if we were applying it to human beings. Not only that, if it was our goal and our end to receive that much glory, it would always be to the detriment of those around us. Because that's the way it works. We would be stepping on other people. Only God could make it his highest aim that he would receive the greatest amount of glory and our benefit would also be to that end. God does not step on us that we might receive glory. It's actually in our benefit that God receives all that glory and that his holiness would be magnified. The only way that we can begin to comprehend and appreciate and love a holy God is by being dependent upon that holy God's complete assistance in making it happen. It's the only way. It is the only way. So we're not going to dwell on this because we've talked about it before. But let me say this, that the holiness of God is not a trivial matter. It's not a trivial matter, and therefore the punishment for offending the holiness of God cannot be trivial either. So that's why the atonement is so great, because the holiness of God is so great. So let's jump to the second part, the wickedness of sin. And we'll aim back at Sproul again, because he has said, and you've heard me say this, that sin is basically cosmic treason, right? Now, what is treason? In American law, treason is basically a sin against the nation, something that compromises the nation, and it can lead to capital punishment. It can lead to death out of risking the the sovereignty of that nation. But how much more wicked is a transgression against a holy God? Not just this tiny little country, but against the God of the universe. Folks, that is serious. And he continues to write that sin is not restricted merely to an external action that transgresses a divine law. Rather, it represents an internal motive, a motive that is driven by an inherent hostility toward the God of the universe. It is rarely discussed in church or in the world that the biblical description of human fallenness includes an indictment that we are by nature enemies of God. In our enmity toward him, we do not want to have him even in our thinking 
And this attitude is one of hostility toward the very fact that God commands us to obey his will. It is because of this concept of the enmity that the New Testament so often describes our redemption in terms of reconciliation. One of the necessary conditions for reconciliation is that there must be a previous enmity between at least two parties. This enmity is what is presupposed by the redeeming work of the mediator, Jesus Christ, who overcomes our enmity with God. Our sinful nature puts us at war with a holy God. That's exactly what it does. When we fell in our sin, we immediately became enemies at God, and we immediately became went to war with God. All right? Now, that's like an ant going to war with a rhinoceros, right? But we do it anyway. Okay? We do it anyway. And so the sinful nature... in in Scripture is not characterized in Scripture as some sort of high school rebellion where a father's going to say, well, eventually they're going to mature. That's not the characterization of sin. The sinner is characterized as being enslaved to a nature that is an all-out assault on all that is holy. Remind yourself of Romans chapter 6. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness. So now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit produced when those things you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now, since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, a God-sized crime requires a God-sized punishment and solution. And so atonement and the greatness of atonement is dependent upon the holiness of God It's dependent upon the wickedness of our sin against a holy God, which leads to the cost of redemption. And so Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 22 says this, That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For even when, for when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with the water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself, And all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. Remember that line. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is none. The old covenant was initiated with blood, the tabernacle was inaugurated with blood, and the new covenant is sealed with blood. Blood represents life and taking of life, and sin required a ton, a ton of blood. In fact, it is thought that over the course of the Old Covenant, through the Old Testament, that over a million animals were sacrificed either in in the tabernacle or the temple over a million animals. And in fact, this is what Kent Hughes writes about the Passover because there is so much blood. During the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down into the Kidron Valley for the disposal of blood, a sacrificial plumbing system. 
there was so much blood coming from the temple that had to be gotten rid of that they created a plumbing system from the temple that when they sacrificed that animal, the blood would then run in to this plumbing system and out into the valley so that it would not stay stagnant within the temple area. Folks, that's a lot of blood. You might get a gallon of blood from every animal. Folks, you may not know this, but I'm a deer hunter, and so I track deer when I shoot them, right? And a little bit of blood looks like a lot of blood on a deer deer trail. You put a gallon of blood out, folks, it's going to look like something out of a Hollywood horror movie. All right? It's a lot of blood. Folks, it takes a lot of blood to cover the sins of man. But if the blood of goats and calves could not have could have solved the problem, it would have been solved a long time ago. If the blood of a calf or a goat being sacrificed in the old covenant system would have redeemed us from our sin, folks, it would have been done a long time ago. But it can't. It can't. That's sort of a that and that's sort of the point of the death and destruction that was the sacrificial system. It pointed to the fact that no amount of blood from a created being, let alone a non-human being, could reconcile us. Something created, something non-human was not going to solve the sin problem of a human created entity. It doesn't work. But it was pointing to something that would substitutionary atonement doesn't occur unless the substitute used for the atonement is equal to the level of the offense. So he says in chapter 10, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, that wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have been conscious of their sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It is impossible. In, chat, in verses 16 and 17, it says this, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. This new covenant solves the penalty of sin through atonement, but it requires blood and not just any blood. It requires the blood of a being that is equal to, to the sin that was committed against a holy God, meaning it had to come from God himself. It had to come from the Son of God. And then we look back at 920 and what Moses says here as he's sprinkling the scroll with blood. He says these words, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. Do those words sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to something Jesus may have said? This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. It is good for us to remember the cost of that new covenant. And so let me remind you what Jesus said in Luke 22. Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, 
gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Don't you think that Jesus was probably remembering the words of Moses as he's saying this? Bringing these two covenants together, fulfilling an old covenant with a new covenant atonement in his shed blood. At this time, I'm going to have George and I'm going to have Brother Melvin come up. Timmy, if you could play something suave. We're actually going to do the Lord's Supper right now. So when we're done, don't run off. I've got one more very short point that ties all this stuff together. But I thought it would be very good for us to go ahead and do the Lord's Supper at this point. So I'm going to go ahead and have them pass the Lord's Supper elements around. And then once we all have our elements, I'm going to pray. We'll take our elements and uh, we'll go. You can go ahead, Brother George. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the body of Christ that was broken, that was scarred, that was beaten and brutalized. The perfect Lamb of God going to the slaughter. We thank you for his body, the body that was laid in the tomb. But Father, we also thank, or thank you for the body that was risen three days later. And we give you all the glory for that. And Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ which cannot be compared to the blood of goats and calves and bulls for they did not have the same sufficiency and power to cover the sins of man but it took the blood of the Son of God to reconcile sinful man to a holy God. And only the blood of the divine Son of God could meet the requirements of the atonement in the new covenant. And Father, we thank you. And we thank you for this opportunity to be able to share in the Lord's Supper together to remember that while grace is free, it does not come without cost. We love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so as we close, let me say this. Is that if we left it right there, there would be enough to apply to our lives right there. That we need to remember that, Christ, that God, number one, loves us. And we need to go throughout our days remembering that God loves us and He is for us. How much does God love us? That He sent His Son, whom He loved in an, 
to an infinite level, sent his son for us. You know, sometimes when we think of application and practical application, that individuals are always looking like, well, what do I do in order to live my life differently? Pastor, tell me how to fix my finances or how to raise my kids or how to do this or how to do that. Folks, it would be arrogant of me to think that I could actually do that because everybody's different. That's not the point. The point is this, is that seek Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let him change your heart and orient yourself to him. And then let that change everything else. Folks, your finances may not improve after coming to Christ. But there is a greater reward than a big bank account awaiting us when we see Christ face to face. And so as we're thinking about application of all this, don't always be thinking about, well, what can I do or how can I change my life? Folks, Christ did the greatest change in you when he gave his life for you and when the Holy Spirit regenerated you. That, there is, no, there is no, nothing that we can do to compare with that. And so meditate on that. Rest in that. And then just chase after Christ. And more times than not, everything else falls into place. Now, folks, if we ended the message right there, that will preach right there. But see, the author did not end his, did not conclude this passage of the atonement with that. He concluded with this line. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. So as we close, I want us to draw us back to the beginning of that message. I told you that God's love for his son was absolutely crucial for the atonement to take effect. It was absolutely crucial. It is true that God sent his son for, out of love for us, but it is equally true that he sent his son out of love for his son. Why? Because his son identifies with us through the in our incarnation and our sin by bearing the weight and its penalty. Christ identifies with, he became human. He became human. And so remember that we are not saved for our own glory, we are saved for the glory of God and the glory of His Son, the glory of Christ, and the love that God has towards the Son is most fully displayed through the cross and the resurrection. So how does God demonstrate His love for His Son? By raising Him up on a cross, but raising Him up even further in the resurrection. Because Christ is glorified through every bit. I am thankful that God loves me, but I'm even more thankful that God loves his son. And so this points to this last aspect of the covenant that was sealed through this more perfect sacrifice. The blood of Jesus doesn't just rectify our relationship with the Father. It promises a blessed hope. I want you to think about this. Every time the high priest in the Old Testament would enter the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, there was a collective holding of breath by the congregation around. Why? Because as the priest goes in to offer the blood of this animal for the sins of himself and the sins of his congregation, it was not, they were not exactly sure that he would come out unscathed. 
if the priest comes out unscathed, there would be a collective sigh of relief because that means that God accepted the sacrifice. But if the priest is crushed in the Holy of Holies, that means that God rejects that sacrifice. The priest comes out. There's a collective sigh of relief. Folks, there are even songs written in Jewish lore, there are songs written about this experience of, the, of this priest coming out because it was such a momentous occasion that he was coming out because he's like, oh, for one more year, our sins are now covered on the Day of Atonement. Folks, I want you to imagine this. Christ dies. He is raised from the dead, and then he enters the most holy of holies, not created by human hands, but in the tabernacle of God, in the presence of God. And here's the beautiful thing. This is the hope, the blessed hope that we have that Titus talks about. It's this, or that's spoken about in Titus, I'm sorry. It's this, is that Christ is going to come back. Just like the, the high priest comes out of the Holy of Holies as evidence, and there's a collective, a collective just gasp and, and rejoicing that he comes, here comes Christ exiting the Holy of Holies back to be with the congregation, with his bride. And folks, there is we are holding our breaths. We are holding our breath right now. Not out of fear like the congregation waiting for the high priest to get crushed. We're not worrying about that because the high priest has already been crushed and he's already been raised and he is with the Father right now. We are holding our breath not to see whether or not he gets crushed again, but to see him come back. And so our collective gasp is not going to be one out of relief. It is going to be one out of joy and excitement and celebration. Because here's the thing. In the Old Testament, the high priest would always have to go back into the Holy of Holies and never bring the congregation with him. Folks, Jesus is coming back and he's taking us with him. He's taking us with him. It's... it's. Do we understand the immensity of that truth? That there is something so much greater waiting for us. The bride of Christ collectively holding our breaths, not in fear, but anticipation. Waiting for Jesus to fulfill it all. This is the love of God. This is the most perfect atonement. And Jesus is our most precious reward. So when we think of the atonement, when we think of the Lord's Supper, oftentimes we'll take the Lord's Supper and we just do it kind of out of just habit, right? Remember that this was everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. And there is going to be a day when Christ does return, not to leave us again, but to take us with him. We will be able to go where no other Old Testament congregation was able to go before because there was no mediator. Christ is the mediator that opens the door for us to be in the presence of God. So what is the application? Here you go. Dwell on that. Just dwell on that. Don't try to figure out how it affects your life right now. Just dwell on the fact that all the stuff that's happening right now is going to be not even a memory when we are in the presence of Christ. And folks, that thought makes this worth living.
If I did not have Jesus, I don't know how I would make it through. But because I have Christ, I am able to run this race without hindrance because we keep our eyes on Christ and He will carry us through.